Welcome to the Writing Western Podcast. I'm your host, Brendan Rensing. Today we speak with Professor Maurice Crandall about his new book, These People Have Always Been a Republic, Indigenous Electorates in the U.S.-Mexico Borderlands, 1598-1912. Let me take a quick moment to explain a bit about the podcast and who produces it. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. For better or worse, it's a one-man operation with me, Brennan Rensing, playing role of host, producer, sound engineer, and everything else. I'm associate director of the Red Center and an associate professor of history at BYU, neither of which roles trained me for the current task. But I do have a lot of fun doing this because I'm passionate about better understanding the North American West, the region I have called home for most of my life. In each Writing Westward episode, I have a conversation with writers of the region, academics, journalists, novelists, poets, scientists, anyone authoring anything about the West. My goal is that these conversations will spark listeners' curiosity to dig in a bit more themselves and think differently about the peoples, histories, environments, ideas, and identities that make up the North American West, or that we ascribe to the region. Please leave reviews or comments on whatever platform you are listening and let me know if we're succeeding. For updates or communication, please follow Writing Westward on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West. You can find all episodes on our website, writingwestward.org, or listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or most all major podcast distribution platforms, apps, and services. To learn more about the BYU Red Center, stay tuned, and at the end of the episode, I'll offer some additional information about our projects, programming, live-streamed lectures, funding opportunities for research, and events. Find the center at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D Center. For more regular updates, you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at BYU Red Center. Now, let me tell you a little bit about today's guest. Maurice Crandall is a member of the Yavapai Apache Nation in Arizona and an assistant professor of Native American Studies at Dartmouth College. His new book, These People Have Always Been a Republic, Indigenous Electorates in the U.S.-Mexico Borderlands, 1598-1912, was published in 2019 by the University of North Carolina Press in their outstanding David J. Weber series in New Borderlands History. Professor Crandall traces and compares the histories of Pueblos, Hopis, Tono Othams, and Yaquis in their interactions with Spanish, Mexican, and American systems of governance and voting. Crandall demonstrates how these groups adapted, imposed political systems, and hybridized them with their own, actively participating in outside systems of government as a means of preserving community, tradition, and sovereignty at home. This is complex history and it shows oscillating highs and lows of native rights and power across successive colonial and settler colonial regimes. He argues that this history can and should inform modern native peoples in their continued fight for sovereignty. For non-native readers and listeners, especially those of us in the West, Crandall's work reveals complex inner workings of native societies that are too often ignored or outright disrespected by outsiders. In a region that regularly talks in overly worn stereotypes and mythologies, this work reminds us that there is more going on in Native histories and current communities than most recognize. Professor Maurice Crandall, welcome to Writing Westward. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I hope that you are weathering the pandemic well, uh, quarantined in Vermont. Are things starting to warm up there for you this spring? It's good right now. It's nice. Um, 
spring is sort of non-existent in uh, northern New England. We sort of go from winter to summer generally. So we had snow in May and then boom, it, it was 90 degrees. Um, <laughs> although we've had some fluctuating temperatures, but spring, like a like an extended nice seasons um, is really short here. And you also have mud season. You heard of mud season? Do you know mud season? <laughs> no. That's when everything melts, all the snow melts, and then uh, I mean, it's mostly dirt roads. I live on a dirt road, so everything just turns to quagmire, <laughs> and you get if it's a good mud season, you know, it'll it'll be a few weeks of just terrible muddy, ruddy roads. But this this mud season was pretty much non-existent because we weren't going anywhere. So one of the advantages of the pandemic is that we missed mud season more or less, <laughs> which was good. That was nice. <laughs> well. For our conversation today, we'll uh, we'll definitely be in drier climes, uh, focusing on the Southwest. Um, mm-hmm. I was happy to be able to work through your book and happy to share it with our listeners. It's an election year, and I think people have voting and elections on the mind. And uh, your book takes a very unique take on that and shares with us some unique histories about not just voting and suffrage, but about political activity and governance among indigenous mm-hmm. peoples, which is, um, I think, something that will be great for people to think about and something I think that will be really important for indigenous peoples to think about um, and to reflect on their own uh, uh, tribal communities, histories and traditions with voting and government. Sure, absolutely. Your work pushes against some historical narratives that I want to open with, specifically the idea that with Native American rights, be it voting rights or other rights uh, in the American Southwest, you push against this idea that there's this clean progression with colonial Spanish or Mexican interactions preparing the way for expanded rights in the United States, then culminate in citizenship in 1921 and then voting thereafter. But you show that Prior to the U.S. era, Native communities had undergone centuries of adapting to political systems, engaging in self-governance, integrating Spanish and Mexican systems of voting and government into their own, being active political agents, including voting, and that they had undergone various processes before uh, the United States shows up. So in the broadest terms, why do you think that presenting this less linear progressive narrative is so important as background for understanding native experiences in the southwest you know i mean there there are a few reasons one is um i don't know necessarily that people who are from the southwest or indigenous people from the southwest tend to forget that there's a very long colonial history i think that that's very present in the minds of um, indigenous peoples from that region, particularly those I, I write about. Um, but I think more broadly, um, sometimes when history is viewed as sort of starting with the U.S.-Mexico war in that region, um, the advent of, of Anglo-American colonialism, that indigenous interactions with colonial powers um, can be portrayed as sort of starting there, uh, that what comes before is just sort of a, an introduction or a prologue, um, but the, the important things happen after 1846, that um, 
political activity, civil rights, all this ramps up within the American framework. Uh, and so I'm, I'm very deliberately pushing back against that idea. Um, and I think even more broadly speaking, the idea that uh, a settler government like the United States has been um, some sort of you know, benign or, or benevolent government that, that grants rights. I mean, it's, it's not a reality. Uh, certainly for the people in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands, it's, it's not a historical reality. The United States is not a nation that comes in and, and sort of organizes chaos and then uh, grants rights. And, and I think that um, that can be uh, a view uh, that, that too many people um, take. And, and that's not also not to say that what came before was, was good or organized or wonderful. Um, it's all a mess. Uh, what happened under colonial Spain and, and then during the Mexican period of independence, uh, all of it was bad and traumatic and terrible for indigenous peoples. Um, and then what what happened with the United States was just as bad and terrible and traumatic and, and maybe more so even. Um, but uh, yeah, the idea that history is progressive, that the, the histories of civil rights for people of color um, can be explained away as, as you know, taking steps and moving forward and upward uh, is just, it's a false narrative and it's, it's harmful. Why do you think it's dangerous or harmful? Specifically for Native communities and Native peoples. Well, for, for one thing, um, those types of narratives lend themselves to people and, um, let's say, politicians who think that our, our work is finished, right? We've, we've, we've worked our way to this point. Uh, the work we needed to do is done. I mean, that, that's the kind of thinking that's behind policies like termination. We've climbed the mountain. We've made it to we the top have. and we're good to yeah. go. And, and look at these tribal nations. They uh, take Menominees. They have a successful lumber mill. They have the, the land and timber resources that could sustain them. Uh, the work has led up to this point. They're ready for that relationship to be terminated. Let's end it. Um, and, and so, for one, I think that that's uh, dangerous. And any, any type of political maneuvering and um, rhetoric that, that frames things in that way as progressive and as, as, you know, we've reached this point. And so now uh, it's time to cut the ties, uh, um, treaty obligations, the trust responsibility, all of that. I think that it's dangerous because of that. Um, and I think that uh, we're seeing that right now with Black Lives Matter. I mean, how many people who oppose this movement say, well, you know, why do we need this? We already have, we have civil rights, we have the laws. Um, and, and the argument that people say, uh, you know, laws don't change people, you need to change people's hearts. And it's like, no, um, because when, when systems and institutions uh, infringe on people and their, their liberty and equality, then it's not a matter of people's hearts. It's, it's systemic. Um, so, yeah, I just I think that overall there's a danger in framing things that way because we should never be to the point where we think like oh, our work is done. Um, on the other side, even with indigenous nations, with my nation, to think we're there. Right. Um, 
the ultimate goal would be indigenous liberation and true sovereignty. And, and we're not there. And I think that if anybody gets to that point and says, yeah, we're, we're there, our work is done. And, and people now who maybe even say, you know, we, we are indigenous nations, we're sovereign nations. We have a nation to nation relationship with the, the federal government. Um, to think that, um, that, that all is, is accomplished uh, is, is dangerous. So I just think that um, viewing history that way, uh, it's simplistic. It can uh, endanger people and communities, and we need to be much more vigilant and always see history as, as ebbs and flows, as ups and downs, and as there always needing to be much more work to be done. Well, I think one thing we get from this that I really appreciate is that, for me, I've always thought that the messier the history is, the more complicated it is, the more challenging it is, um, even though it uh, may make, make us uncomfortable or be challenging, it in the end is more empowering, especially for uh, the history of, you know, the specific groups that are being talked about. And I find that in your book, by revealing the, all of the ebbs and flows through the Spanish, Mexican, and then U.S. periods that these Native nations went through, we see examples of uh, not just Native agency, but of real, complicated, complex um, native decision-making uh, by individuals and by communities. And some of it is 300, 400 years old, but it shows mm -hmm. that native peoples having civil rights are being really astute political actors is not just a 20th century phenomenon. You know, it didn't just start with the red progressives, you know, in the early 20th century. You had 300 years ago, native communities coming together and politicking and strategizing and um, absolutely yeah. absolutely and i think that um the historiography is that that body of work that demonstrates this is growing particularly among you know like early americanists who are showing the the the, the petition and how how much native nations uh both individually and collectively have have used the petition um you know, i had some of my students this term read uh, petitions by Haudenosaunee peoples in um, in upstate New York, in particular, who were uh, opposing um, they were opposing removal. I mean, this is during the removal era, and they were using a variety of languages in those petitions and and the way that they referred to um, officials and the president and members of Congress and their in their petitions. You know, appeals to both civilization and Christianity, but then also um, using language that put them on um, an equal footing with uh, American officials. And, and so I think that, yeah, we need to see political communities as exercising sovereignty um, over the course of hundreds of years from the earliest, earliest days. It's not like Native people had to learn systems. I mean, they had to become familiarized with systems of governance and colonial institutions. But it's not like the, the learning started there. I mean, these were already politically astute communities. This is just overlaying another system that then has to be negotiated and navigated, but always within the framework of what was already there, that these people has, have always been a republic. They've always had a government, right? They, they're, yeah. They've always been doing this. This is just uh, a newcomer, a colonial nation state comes in, okay, 
we have to deal with this, but we, we've already been doing this in our communities. We already know about governance. We already know about negotiation. Um, and so we're going to have to um, do what works. And we're going to have to figure out what works. Uh, and some of it's going to be indigenous, but some of it is going to be adaptation. Um, but yeah. that's what this is all about. Yeah, I hope that listeners find this empowering as well as they think about, you know, their own their own histories or communities or whatever it is that they're working on. Sometimes we view new modern problems that we're facing and we kind of tell ourselves that, well, now we need to finally rise up and come up with solutions. Um, but we actually we can look back and what whatever our history is and find in our community's histories with our ancestors that they rose up and found solutions to what often were very similar problems, perhaps in older mm-hmm. trappings and without certain modern contexts, but um, we can we can draw from their lessons. That, that's why we study history. This isn't yeah. rocket science, right? No, that, yeah, that's absolutely. why we study history. Mm-hmm. Well, let's um, we, you talk about four groups in your book, and you work through these chronologically in the book, and I'd like to take them in a little bit in a different order and take them by group. Um, these are pueblos uh, in New Mexico, and what becomes New Mexico. Um, Hopis in northern Arizona, Tono Othams along what becomes the U.S.-Mexico border, and Yaquis in Sonora and Arizona. And mm-hmm. um, I'd like to start with the Pueblos, and that may be the group that we spend the most time with. Yeah. Um, it, it, in your book, it is the group that uh, I think does have the most pages dedicated to them, but it's the group that we by far have the most uh, records for and um, goes through some of the most robust and complicated processes and it's useful to throughout your book you you bounce the other examples kind of all off the pueblo example sure sure um explain to us and this is one thing that i found really fascinating and i think this will kind of serve as kind of a good example of the complicated nature of native governance uh, in some of these early colonial interactions can you walk us through in the briefest terms which may be difficult the so post spanish colonial contact new mexico pueblos start integrating spanish forms of governance with their own and could you explain to us the election process that they have Mm -hmm. in this early colonial era you have a tripartite government with 14 officials um and uh in in my understanding um and i don't want to try to grill you on the specifics here but sure the, the first part you had some Spanish, you had a governor, two lieutenants, and a sheriff. The second part of the government was a war chief, assistant war chief, and then uh, four or five officials guarding traditional knowledge. And then mm-hmm. you had another group with church officials. Sure. If this is a, a complex system. So, walk yeah. us through then Try how to they, simplify this a little yeah, bit. How do they then run elections? And it happens on yeah. specific days. There's specific mm-hmm. processes. Run us through this to give listeners a flavor for how complicated this system was. Yeah. Well, I think the first thing that needs to be mentioned is when we say the word Pueblo Indians, Pueblo nations, we're talking about what was once um, scores of nations, that when Spaniards came to New Mexico, that there were many, many, many Pueblo nations that ranged from you know, northern Tiwas in Taos and Picaris down to Salinas Pueblos and and uh, in, in southern New Mexico. So it's, it's a wide range of people. And they speak mutually unintelligible languages. They, it's yeah, a complex yeah. group. 
<clears throat> it is. And so we're, we're talking about a, a large um, group of indigenous nations. And so it's difficult. Uh, part of the reason that they have the, the largest page count is because we're talking about the most nations when we're talking about Pueblos. And so that's, that's part of the reason. Um, so the, the system of government that Spain implements all over their colonial um, uh, realm, um, the, the, the places that they, you know, conquer forcefully and subdue. Um, it, it takes a different form in each setting, but it, it, it's sort of, you know, there are similarities throughout. Um, and much of it depended on where um, the nations that they're, that they're encountering and also the, the, orders of friars that are there uh, administering these missions because these are mission communities. So there's always this, on the Spanish side, this church state duality um, and frequently in competition, uh, each side in competition with the other. Um, but what you have is... I think Tewa Pueblo is the, was kind of the system that I was referring to. Right? Yeah, yeah, yes, absolutely. And so if you can walk us through that, does it differ dramatically from from some of the other Pueblos? Um, no, no, it wouldn't. It wouldn't differ um, significantly. Uh, so it's, it's somewhat it's representative. Going to be similar. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be similar in the in the pueblos. Um, what you have is uh, a Spanish, you know, uh, governor will come to the community. So that's if, if we're talking about um, uh, Vargas when he comes to New Mexico, fifteen ninety eight. He goes to the pueblos and they he makes them perform this act of submission. Of course, there's this misunderstanding, um, obviously, on the part of the Pueblos of, of or, or how they understand this, this interaction to take place and, and its meanings. Um, they certainly aren't saying, you know, we submit 100% to the two to the two lords, uh, Jesus Christ and the, and the, the um, Spanish king. Um, but anyway, Spaniards don't want to deal with large groups of indigenous leaders who do things by consensus, who, who talk sometimes for days until everybody is in agreement and they can reach this, uh, this consensus and important decisions. Um, they want a handful of identifiable individuals with whom that they can, they can interact and um, that will make decisions for that community and be um, the, the point people for those interactions. Um, and so it's loosely based on the Spanish town model where you have uh, a governor um, or sometimes it's an alcalde, depending on the, the group and the setting. But in New Mexico, it's a, a governor, sometimes referred to as a, a gobernadorcillo, like a little governor. Obviously, they're, you know, it's a pejorative for an indigenous governor not being seen as, uh, as important as a Spanish governor. Um, so you have the governor and then his, his lieutenant or, uh, or a few lieutenants, and then you have um, war chiefs and other officials, uh, and then you have church officers who um, would see to church attendance in the community. You know, they, they could they could compel and use compulsory means to make uh, indigenous community members go to mass and uh, go to uh, different church functions. Um, you have a sheriff that is you know, to oversee law and order in the community, and, and the governor is often vested with the power to punish minor crimes. Um, typically it's the priest who will uh, oversee major crimes or it'll go to a, a, an actual Spanish court, um, but the, the priests were not uh, adverse to flogging individuals. I mean, they did this frequently in communities. The election itself also could depend on the place. Um, in most of the Pueblos, what you had was 
an election that conformed more to indigenous ways of leadership and of, of selecting leaders. So in the Tewa Pueblos, um, frequently where there's, um, you know, the, the, the dual, the split between summer and winter in those communities. So you so have these a summer two rotating chief and a winter chiefs, chief. Yeah. yeah there, there are these moieties there and, and they're rotating in the sense that one, will begin the selecting each year. And so um, as Alfonso Ortiz explained in, in Tewa World, you know, one the year the summer chief starts and says, this is the my choice for governor. And then the, the winter chief says, that's good. This is mine for lieutenant governor. And then they go back and forth till they've chosen all the officers. Um, and roughly you have the outline of who the uh, the officers will be for the coming year. Um, then those are taken to society leaders you know, Kiva leaders, um, and, and they debate then, right. And, you know, they will, um, but usually it's, it's done through consensus unless somebody knows a, a compelling reason why somebody shouldn't be in a leadership position, but generally there will be agreement. Um, and they have to be wise in their choices. Obviously it's, um, these individuals will be interacting with Spaniards frequently. They will need to go to Santa Fe or even all the way to Mexico City if there's a, a very pressing issue that needs an audience with, um, in, you know, with the viceroy or someone of that sort. I mean, they need um, good governance. Uh, their survival and prosperity depends on it. Yeah, yeah. Generally speaking, although people are removed from office and, and you have petitions from public communities that, you know, the guy who's the governor is not doing a good job, is doing a bad job and they want him out of there or is, he's abusing his power. Um, mm -hmm. See, like up to here, this sounds not too um, foreign, right? You have some kind of ideas of representative government um you know, already chosen officials choosing other officials. Um, well, uh, the, the the already chosen officials who are doing the choosing, though, they're not. Um, th those are religious leaders in the community. They are the society heads. Yeah. Yeah. These are these are people who have religious offices and ceremonial functions, and they're not part of um, the Spanish system generally. So here's what we see: this kind of hy hybridity already of the two systems. Absolutely. Absolutely. And 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 the two forms. So in Pueblo society, you know, uh, as Pueblo peoples have said to me on numerous occasions, you know, we're, we are a theocracy. This is theocratic government. So the the society leaders and the, the cacique, um, the summer winter chief, all of these individuals, you know, they are religious leaders. I mean, their primary functions are religious because in the Pueblo world, Everything has to be overseen and done through a cycle of ceremonies and prayers and um, offerings, and all of this needs to be done um, to ensure harmony in the world, to ensure a, a proper harvest, and that the community will have what it needs and the, the protection that it needs. And so those leaders that are overseeing this election are religious leaders. Mm. They are religious leaders. Um, the secular leadership that's chosen, the Spanish officials are secular officials. Um, they don't have religious functions, generally speaking. Um, they're there to deal with Spaniards in matters that pertain to the Pueblo land, to Pueblo rights, um, disputes with outsiders or with neighbors who are who are moving on to Pueblo um, lands and, and whatnot. Um, but it's understood that they are elected, you know, and chosen and usually just for a year. 
Uh, but it's understood that the real power in the community rests with the traditional leadership. That That's where the power truly is. Um, and, and that's not to say that these officers who are chosen under the Spanish system that's, that's imposed aren't important. They are important because they're going to go to court. They're going to lobby officials. They're going to send petitions. They're going to um, argue for their people and their communities. Uh, but they are not overseeing the day-to-day -day ceremonial obligations of the community that ensure harmony, that so ensure they're life. They're all more external facing in a way. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. So then these, these nominated officials are, the governor takes them and presents their name to all of the outgoing officials. Yeah. And then the out, yeah. and this is all on December 31st. And then on January 1st, the outgoing officials go and kind of kidnap all of the new nominees and they go through this kind of process of the nominees, like feigning humility and like, oh, no, no, I surely couldn't, mm -hmm. you know, do this. And they go, go through kind of a, 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 yeah. a very kind of uh, a prescribed set of kind of cultural uh, steps, right? Of I think I think to some extent, yes. I mean, they're like you say, they the outgoing officers from the previous year. Um, are told by the society heads and the religious leaders from the community who have done the actual electing, they're told who their replacements are. Uh, and, it, and leading up to this, all is very, uh, is kept very under wraps. I mean, it's, they're very secretive because historically to be an officer, to be a governor or a lieutenant governor, Basically, it's a year of service to your community, but it's done without pay generally, and you're going to be away for long periods. You'll be away from your family. Um, you won't be able to spend as much time uh, in your field, you know, uh, growing the food necessary. I mean, it's it's a it's a huge obligation and responsibility. Uh, and so when finally, when the the new officers who have been selected and and chosen for office are notified. Um, I think that the, that people really are um, saying why they can't do it, you know, because you know what you're what you're in for, and maybe you 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 think, oh gosh, I don't I don't know if I can do this, right? So they're not um, just feigning humility; they sometimes I, I actually think, don't. Oh yeah, absolutely. And there there are cases, and I've been told by by Pueblo friends of times when people were out of town intentionally at the end of the year that um, <laughs> in one you know guy I worked with who was from. Um, was from Akama, and he said that uh, one of the officers who had been selected was out of town, and um, the community sent somebody after him, and they they drove to wherever he was and picked him up and brought him back and said, you know, you're an officer now, and you need to do this for the community. And so I think that yes, there is some some humility that you need to display because in indigenous society, it's not good to say, oh yes, you've chosen me. That's right. I'm great. You know, you, uh, I, I'm the one for this job. Because that's just, that's frowned upon in a, in a more collective um, type of indigenous community where, where that type of uh, kind of prideful showing is, is totally frowned upon. So yes, you have to say, oh, I, I don't know if I can do this, but then I think that there are real concerns by those who are selected that, Gosh, do I have the time, the resources? Will my family be okay? Um, you know, all these things are are sincere. Um, but once that's done, and and once you know the the people have been told, um, 
as as Alphonse Ortiz said, it's sort of like all resistance is futile. You know, it's almost like the Borg, right? Mm-hmm. Um, resistance is futile in the end, for the most part. Uh, although there is a way, you know, if somebody is is truly seen unfit for office, or in some you know, in rare cases where somebody can truly make a compelling argument of, as to why they can't do it, uh, maybe there's something that people aren't aware of, then it, then it, you know, it can happen that somebody who has been chosen for office and elected through that indigenous electoral process um, won't be in, won't, won't then uh, be in office. But usually they're, they're, uh, it, it's seen as your responsibility, your obligation to the community. You've been asked by the, the leadership and those, those leaders in your community, the religious leaders to do something. And so you, you agree to do it because that's your responsibility as a community member. So after all this, there's then some ceremonies with the, with the governor, transfers of authority. Right. Um, there are, they get there a blessing from the priests. Sure. Yeah. There's both religious ceremonies with the traditional leadership um, who, you know, give them talks and say, look, you're important for our community and you need to do your job well. You need to um, see to it that our lands are protected, that our way of life, that our very existence, which depends on all this, is is, uh, is protected and safe. And then there's the the local priest at the mission who will sort of give them a similar talk and, and you know, give a, some sort of bless, say a prayer over them. Um, and then traditionally, they'll the leaders will travel to the provincial seat of power, which in New Mexico is Santa Fe. So they go to Santa Fe, and uh, the governor there or his representative then. So there's this kind of in- inauguration, mm-hmm. if you will, where you know the, all of the the necessary um, stamps of a, of approval have been made from the religious leaders of the community, which is the most important to the pueblo. The actual traditional leadership has given their stamp of approval, then the priest there, and then the governor of New Mexico. So they have sanction from all these different areas, and they're seen as the the legitimate secular civil leaders uh, in their community for the coming year. What I think is interesting about this, this is not a straight Spanish system. You know, Spain here was allowing pueblos to really do a lot of things their own way. Um, and you write about how the Spanish goals very much, you know, both short and long term were uh, – uh, kind of three parts, the reduction of native peoples, their conversion to Catholicism, and then this idea of self-government. Um, but the, the reason for all that, the end goal, is that Spain was viewing native peoples as future citizens and future tax revenues. Mm-hmm. That they wanted to turn these lands and these peoples into taxable citizens. Um, right. And one way to do that is to... Um, to, to allow for some flexibility with them to, to make these hybrid systems. And I'm interested then, I mean, if we can kind of move then into the Mexican um, era, um, when when Mexico comes in, there's some of these high ideals of, you know, native independence and equality and opportunity. It's going to be this bright new future. Um, but, and and I'm, I'm curious if you see some, uh, some, parallels here with uh, the termination era in the United States, um, as Mexico is envisioning equality for its native peoples in treating them as, quote unquote, normal citizens and not as uh, Indian republics as Spain had. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Often what that meant in practice was encroachment uh, on native lands and resources and the reduction of protections for native peoples and lands and resources. So I, this isn't like the end game of what Spain was doing of turning them into normal citizens. I don't 
I don't, I'm not saying this is a clean progression, but um, do you see this equality rhetoric that comes then in the Mexican era um, as analogous to later what happens with termination in the United States? Yeah, absolutely. I think there are some similarities. And and you'll see that play out uh, in Pueblo communities, in the other groups that we talk about. I mean, with, with Yaquis in particular, um, this idea of... So, I mean, the... The way that the missions were supposed to progress was, you know, a fairly quick secularization, that they wouldn't be run by uh, orders of friars anymore. You know, you wouldn't have Jesuits or Franciscans, but they would have a a secular priest there and that they would be parishes, um, which then, you know, would pay an actual tithe and then they would be Spanish subject citizens and and pay um, taxes to the crown. But then the, the reality was that that didn't take place. Uh, that didn't happen. I mean, these remained um, communities that were run through Franciscans. Uh, the hold that the orders had diminished significantly during the latter part of the Spanish period in New Mexico and elsewhere. I mean, just the, the power that the orders of friars had um, diminished for a variety of reasons. And then you have the Bourbon reforms and you know a lot happens, but in the Mexican era, you know, the ideals of equality, the the plan de iguala and, and that the distinctions between indigenous peoples and non-indigenous were, were dropped, um, that the language itself is changed and how indigenous people are, are referred to in documents uh, changes. Um, and yes, these ideals are a way to... Um, to get rid of uh, indigenous communities as distinctive communities. You know, it's a way to, you know, get rid of any, any way of um, referring to them that, that makes reference um, to their indigeneity, to their, their status as, as Indian republics, as they had been under Spain. Um, with the end goal of, of political incorporation, you know, increasing the, the tax body, um, dropping any special protections or uh, like under Spain at various times, there was a, there was a protector de indios, a, a person who was selected to represent indigenous peoples in court cases and, and sort of be their protector. Um, and some individuals did that fairly well, others not so well. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's similar to what goes on later uh, in the United States and not even just with termination, but with, how the, the United States deals with Pueblo peoples during the territorial period. I mean, they're yeah. trying to do the same thing. They're trying to say, look, you all are too advanced um, to be Indians, Indians anymore, yeah, yeah. right? So we don't even want to call you that because you're not like other Indians. Well, no other, no Indians are like other Indians. We are all indigenous nations. We're all completely different from each other and, and have our own distinct cultures and traditions and, and forms of governance and all of this. So that, that whole argument was pretty stupid. But um, yeah, yeah, the, the goal is always uh, a form of political incorporation that results in, in erasure, in disappearance. You want indigenous people to just sort of fade away into the larger body politic, into the mainstream, so that uh, they're gone. Um, and th- this is colonialism, right? Yeah. This is yeah. <laughs> settler colonialism is aimed at erasure. And um, so, of course, these communities are resilient and, and resist and, and keep their traditions and stay um, uh, solvent and, and strong. Um, 
but all three of the colonial powers, I mean, their, their end goal is to get rid of indigenous people. Let's, let's be honest. That's what they want to do. Well, at the end of the Mexican era, what, I mean, we, when we talk about citizenship, we, I think view that on, on its face largely as a real positive thing. We're like, Oh yeah. Like how could they not have been granted citizenship? You know, it's great that they were right. So they come out of the Mexican era as citizens, but then how does citizen, nominally, nominally, nominal yes, citizens. on paper, yeah. Um, because but, most things in Pueblo communities and, and indigenous communities in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands continue as they had before. Yeah. Um, How does citizenship then play out in the in the uh, in the American period then? Because this becomes very complicated for Pueblo, Pueblo peoples. And maybe we can move through this really quick so we can get to yeah, some of the sure. other groups. Sure. But um, but again, we think, oh, uh, how how wrong is it that they weren't considered regular citizens? citizens of the United States until 1924, but in the mm -hmm. Pueblo example, we actually see that with citizens, like becoming a citizen had a, uh, a dark side and had, uh, that there were things you gained and lost. So you Absolutely. walk us through that Pueblo, the Pueblo example a little yeah. bit? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848, um, granted citizenship or the, the possibility for citizenship U.S. citizenship to anyone who had been a Mexican citizen. Uh, and since Pueblos had been declared citizens of Mexico, the Republic, then that meant they could become U.S. citizens. And um, so the United States uh, early on and, and actually for several decades after the late 1840s, there are questions of the status of Pueblo peoples. Are they citizens? Um, you know, the U.S. officials are obsessed with uh, levels of civilization. I mean, this is the, the Indian Bureau is frequently classifying people. You know, they, they wear citizen dress. They do these things. So they, they're, they're higher on the scale than these people. You know, they're always comparing because of this, you know, ideas of, of social evolution that happen. Um, but the Pueblos are seen as, yes, potentially citizens, but also maybe not quite there yet. And um, and U.S. officials are sort of perplexed. Uh, there's a camp that wants to declare them all just, yes, the Pueblos are citizens of the United States, while at the same time denying the right to vote and suffrage and and um, and what we would deem, you know, just kind of fundamental civil rights. They want to have it both another, ways. They want them to be yeah. taxable citizens with no land protections, with, but they don't. They shouldn't be able to. Vote. Exactly, exactly. And then there's another camp which uh, says no. They need to be under the protection, you know, protection in quotes of the Indian Bureau and have protections for their land, land in trust, that type of idea. Um, and and so you know this dispute plays out in the pueblos eventually for their part you know side with the indian bureau because it offers the the best protections of their communities that um foster more sovereignty and independence because yes if if they're declared citizens of the united states then their lands are um not protected under uh federal law the non-intercourse acts that that would provide protection from outsiders and from selling land um uh, and so citizenship would be disastrous for the Pueblos, and many, many of them recognize that. And, and on top of that, they say, you know, the, the fundamental argument that they ultimately make is we already have a government. We already have a form. We've adopted. We went through this process twice already with, with Spain and Mexico. Here we are. A new colonizer has arrived. We've gone through this before. We have systems systems in place that are robust, that have protected our our land base and our people, not you know imperfectly, obviously over over time. And these systems again are not uh, without their faults and and need to be critiqued as well because they're 
they're the, you know, they, they, um, they're, they're male dominated, you know, that they, they've sustained patriarchy and, and patriarchal ideas and systems, and that's not good, um, and not really the Pueblo way. But anyway, um, ultimately they say, look, we've already, we already have a form of government. We already have elections. We already have officers. We take care of our communities. We do all of these things. We see to, um, judicial matters and, and law and order and all of it. We already do all of this and U.S. citizenship will not change that. What it will do is make our lands more susceptible to, uh, encroachment, sale, um, theft, outright theft by non-indigenous people. And so there's a rejection of citizenship and of voting specifically because voting is sort of the thing that's most associated with uh, with citizenship. And so Pueblo peoples during the territorial period up through the early 1900s, uh, uh, there are pockets of, of Pueblo peoples that go to the polls and that vote. But generally speaking, they they don't do it. They stay away um, with the understanding of, look, we just want to be sovereign communities. We want to see to our own affairs and being involved in um, political matters of the United States or the, the, the territory of New Mexico more broadly um, will not help us and potentially harms us more. Hmm. Well, for the other three groups you talk about, Hopis, Yaquis, and Tono Othams, um, in the broadest terms, um, and again, this is from enormous portions of your book, and I'm not going to hmm. do it any justice here, but um, <laughs> in the most generalized terms, um, Hopi people's more... Uh, reject and do not incorporate all of these things in yeah. S- Spain, Mexican, and early U.S. territorial era. Uh, Absolutely. Sweeping generalization. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Tona Othams um, do incorporate things and have some hybrid systems, but the system is never as well developed or is consistently sustained, um, and it, it, it's never quite as robust as with the Pueblos. Um, and then the Yaquis are kind of on the other extreme. So you kind of lay these out as, uh, in, in kind of on a scale. The Yaquis really aggressively um, incorporate Spanish systems and build a robust hybrid system and robust mm-hmm. political uh, measures uh, in Sonora. Um, and one thing that I found so interesting uh, about this is that, um, I mean, there's somewhat of a paradox, especially with the Yaquis, in that um, – their incorporation of Spanish systems, uh, uh, their conversion and Spanish systems of government they incorporated, um, they then use that to strengthen their power against Spain and against yeah, the absolutely. colonial power. And yeah. um, I mean, I talk about it a little bit in my book. Um, Rafi Folsom talks about it in his book, Yaquis and Empire. Mm-hmm. We have these, you know, over centuries, repeated. Yaqui revolts and rebellions and warfare against Spain and against Mexico, but mm-hmm. often the triggering events were when Spain or Mexico came in and tried to monkey around with Yaqui governance, Yaqui yeah. governance, which was a hybrid Spanish Yaqui system, but exactly. they then had taken over, they owned it, they used it for their own power, and when Spain then tried to come in and monkey with it, that's when Yaqui stand up and revolt. Sure. And I mean, Folsom, even his argument of, of let's say, like the, the Yaqui revolt in the 1730s and 40s, that they're not revolting to get rid of a Spanish system. They actually want to dictate the terms of their own participation Yeah. It, in, a, in a Spanish and, and 
capitalist system. You know, we want to work at mines. We want to we want to work where we want. We want to be where we want. We want mobility. We want economic uh, uh, freedoms. Um, and again, and the, the the argument that I make, a large part of it is don't mess with our government. Stop. Stop meddling in our elections. Stop deposing our officers. Stop uh, uh, Jesuits, you know, controlling elections and sort of forcing uh, their own candidates who are who are you know sort of indigenous yes men in many mm -hmm. cases sort of favor um, uh, the, the Jesuit side, let's say. Uh, so yeah, that that's often problematic. And you know, there's some. We, we could say there's some irony in that, of course, that um, they're fighting for a system that is a hybridized indigenous, but also Spanish system, right? It's a combination of uh, of of these things. Um, it's a big intervention, though, that you and Folsom others make to reframe this, because it reframes Yaqui or even other indigenous um, resistance, which mm -hmm. which Spain would like to characterize as they're trying to reject, you know, re rejecting the colonial power. And it, that's not exactly what was happening. They were saying mm -hmm. they were trying to dictate their participation in that colonial yeah. system. Um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, and just kind of even to, to broader themes of thinking about indigenous communities as being sort of like timeless and that, you know, traditions persist and um, are sort of unchanging, uh, which is also, I think, a, a dangerous way to view indigenous communities. Um, they are incorporative. They they use what works. They take what they like. Um, and and in my community, you know, I see this as well. There are things that you know there are innovations that maybe come from outside, but those that come from within. And and you you take all of these things and and they can be used together um, with an indigenous way of being and thinking always at the, the core of everything. I mean, the, the Yaqui way of, of being, of, um, of living, you know, the, the, the Yaqui life ways are always at the core, um, but absolutely they are um, by, certainly by the, seven, by, the, by the 1700s into the 18th century and, and after are an interesting mix. I mean, they, they and, and incredibly complex, I mean, all of these different, um, you know, societies within the community, and and you know, ingenious ways of of even taking Catholic religion and, and indigenizing it and making it Yaqui. You know that Jesus Christ walked along the Yaqui River. I mean, when I was down there a couple summers ago, there was a place where there's a there's a footprint on a rock along the Yaqui River in one of the villages, and and our Yaqui friends were showing us this place, and they're like, yeah, that's the footprint where Jesus walked on this river, you know, and that um, the Bethlehem in the Bible that's mentioned becomes Belem, the the Yaqui village, and mm -hmm. that these things take place within Yaqui communities, um, which is an ingenious way of you know taking the colonizers tools and totally flipping them on their head and, and indigenizing them, making them your own. Let's talk about um, Arizona, New Mexico a little bit um, and how uh, native citizenship and voting plays out during the territorial and then into that early state period, which is where you end um, mm -hmm. and your book. How do these debates for, um, uh, 
how do the debates over uh, Pueblos and Hopis, Tono Othams, and others, you know, in Arizona, New Mexico, play out um, in this latter period, bringing us up to um, citizenship in 1924? But actually, Arizona and New Mexico don't grant uh, full Native suffrage until the 1940s, I think. Yeah, yeah, um, no, late 1940s. So how do these kind of latter periods play out then for these other groups? Um. So in New Mexico with Pueblo peoples, you have resistance to citizenship. And uh, during the the first decades into the 1920s uh, of the 20th century, you have the emergence of, and this isn't really in my book. I mean, I mentioned him a few times, but Pablo Abeda becomes a very vocal spokesman for Pueblo peoples. He's an Isleta Pueblo man um, who had positions there, um, but they're very much opposed to citizenship uh, because um, the, they don't want uh, a political status sort of um, placed upon them, right? They want it to be of, of their own choosing. And um, Pablo Beta famously says, like, I hope I'm dead and buried before my people ever vote um, mm-hmm. before they go to the polls. And that's not, again, not to say that some individuals or groups of individuals didn't go to elections and vote. They did. Um, there, there are examples here and there. But largely speaking, indigenous peoples are opposed to the vote. Um, you have a turn after the world wars um, where more indigenous Arizonans and New Mexicans both uh, are, are pursuing civil rights, uh, the franchise in particular. And I think that there are a variety of reasons for that. There's sort of a larger exposure to the world um, going overseas and a, a, you know, a large group of veterans who come home uh, and who see their communities and within a broader framework of, of talking about civil rights and sort of being second class citizens, um, they start to articulate arguments that are more in line with with civil rights arguments, right? Um, and that indigenous people deserve the vote. Um, but previous to that time, by indigenous peoples, largely there is uh, at the very least disinterest in voting uh, or outright rejection. Um, and because of why? Well, these communities, you know, the most important thing as sovereign nations, the most important things are national affairs, their own affairs within their communities. Uh, and they continue to be nations and to act like nations. And, and uh, you know, the most important things are those that affect their own communities. And when they need redress, well, then delegations go to Washington, D.C., and, and talk to the president or they send letters to officials or they meet with um, Indian agents and, and governors of territories. Um, but by and large, uh, there is no big move by indigenous communities to secure the vote. That just, that doesn't happen. Um, and while at the same time in both uh, New Mexico and Arizona, there are efforts to sometimes enfranchise native communities or, or not enfranchise, but to have them declared citizens, like we said, so that then their land is open and, and um, white settlers can be enriched from those lands or, or not even always white settlers, sometimes um, Latino settlers or, or Hispano settlers. Um, uh, but, in, but, but then you have the development at the same time of um, you know, uh, laws that are that are based on race, um, territorial laws in in Arizona that bar non-white people from uh, the franchise. Uh, Mexico so doesn't have that wording. 
No. Right. That's, that's uh, well, in New Mexico. Yeah, in the in the Herald Code. Um, in New Mexico, it's uh, it's largely based on um, Indians not taxed. So the the New Mexico Territorial Constitution, which says, um, and then the state constitution, it, it refers to um, people not tax Indians not taxed, not having the franchise. Mm -hmm. And then in Arizona, um, Indigenous people are barred from voting through wardship status. So uh, being under the the you know quote unquote wardship or supervision of the the Indian Bureau barred indigenous people from voting in Arizona. Um, but it, you know, the statute itself, as it was written, referred to um, people of, of not sound mind and institutionalized. So imprisoned or, or institutionalized people or wards of the government in that sense. And so indigenous people are classed with, you know, the, the, the mentally uh, mm -hmm. insane or, or institutionalized. Um, and it's, you know, those laws are important, but at the same time, uh, like I said, there's no rush by indigenous people to secure the franchise. And so what those laws do is just really enshrine um, racism towards indigenous people. Uh, um, and it's not until, again, the, the post-war years, the latter part of the 1940s, with returning veterans who are kind of running, uh, who, are, who, are, who are pushing for voting rights, and you see a, a different development there. But the legacy of all this continues, and you, see, you have in indigenous communities in New Mexico and Arizona and elsewhere, I think, I think you'd find this trend nationwide, a, a real suspicion of, of American um, forms of democracy uh, and and often low voter turnouts. Um, and so you, oh, you have these rock the vote initiatives every election cycle in indigenous communities in particular. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, you have a lot of indigenous people who say, I don't, I don't want to vote, you know, like voting isn't important to me because we are indigenous nations and, and we need to act like indigenous nations and not try to um, be part of the settler state. Like what does it have to give to us? Um, you know, the idea that, that a state grants rights. We are sovereign nations with inherent rights. We don't need any of that. Um, yeah, it's interesting. There's kind of this, to the level in which certain Native peoples were engaged with the United States, right? Perhaps by being a veteran or mm -hmm. perhaps living off reservation. Um, the incentives or the interest in, in voting maybe sometimes increases. But again, it's often um, on their initiative. Um, mm -hmm. We have this narrative that the United States comes and grants the right to vote, right? Bestows it upon native peoples. But often uh, in practice, it was not until native peoples themselves decided that, uh, yes, th this time it is in our best interest to engage with the settler state by voting in, you know, uh, American elections. Um, mm -hmm. but, mm -hmm. uh, and, when, and it still it remains out, controversial. Yeah. And it's still controversial in those communities, even in the late 1940s when, um, you know, Miguel Trujillo, uh, in New Mexico, who's who's a, a Marine Corps veteran. Um, although he didn't he didn't see like active uh, battle combat, but he was he was a veteran during the war and had had a college education. Was a BIA teacher. Um, starts pressing for voting rights. There was not consensus in Pueblo communities of like, yeah, we need to do this. There was still you know discussion over that, and and I think continued discussion to this day in many indigenous communities of people who say engagement with a settler colonial nation like the United States 
ultimately doesn't benefit us. We shouldn't be focusing our attention on that and engaging with those systems. We should be engaged in direct action aimed at indigenous liberation. Uh, and you see that play out in, in the 20th and 21st century and with organizations like the National Congress of American Indians, which is very much aimed at lobbying and political, um, you know, uh, engaging with the United States government and, and political action in the form of lobbying. And then the National Indian Youth Council, the NIYC, which is like, no, we're going to take direct action. And, and, and those groups are kind of in dispute with each other. And, uh, you know, the National Congress of American Indians, for a time, they, they say Indians don't protest. We don't do that. Uh, that's their mantra. And, and the National Indian Youth Council, in response, that because it's youth led and it's young people, they, they start calling them the National Congress of Aged Indians. Um, <laughs> so, you know, these things, uh, they're these still are the te these tensions relevant. That are here today, like are mm -hmm. the same that were here in the 19 teens. And the, I mean, that's, and that's the, what's fascinating. And the 19th century yeah. and the 18th century. And yes, right. How, to what level do you engage with a colonial state um, for your quote unquote protections or rights? You know, how far will that take you? Um, and, and those are the questions that these groups that I, that I work on are asking, you know, what, what, what does engagement, what does voting, what does political participation um, in the territory of New Mexico or in Mexican New Mexico or, or uh, the, the, the province of Sonora, what does political participation and engagement with these colonial forms accomplish? What will it get us? How will it help us? Um, and the, the answers aren't always the same. And, yeah. and you'll see it, it plays out differently in each period and in each setting. But those are ultimately the questions. And I think the answer that I, I mean, the answer, not I think, but the answer that I give in my book is, is not all that much in the end. Um, that the most important thing is, is sovereignty. It's uh, being indigenous nations, being the nations that we are. Um, and I see that in my own community as well, you know. Uh, we we have these discussions and and um, what good does it do us to interact with the Bureau of Indian Affairs you know continually you know uh, has it helped us in the end or or should we start acting more like a sovereign nation yes my my thought is yes we should we should be the sovereign nations that we are so if you had the stage and you had the ear of every native community in the United States and all their tribal councils and you they had, oh, all just, they had all just read your book. Um, I mean, is this is this what you would impart to them saying, you know, learn from this history of how these native nations negotiated all these things. But uh, but but in the end, um, think about how to act in the best interest of being a sovereign native community. Engage when when it benefits us. Focus on mm -hmm. internal matters when it benefits us and. And kind of continue yeah. this tradition of adaptability and flexibility and uh, active, not just reactive, but active uh, uh, decision making and engagement for political matters, internal, external. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think all those things are important. The, the adaptability, the learning from, you know, what has worked and what hasn't worked and, and trying to kind of forecast um, future interactions with with colonial nation states, but always, always keeping in mind um, a, a strong sense of indigenous nationalism. 
uh, yeah, that we are nations and that the, the, the thing that we need to protect more than anything else is our land, our culture, our way of life, and our, our nationhood. Well, I, I really enjoyed, um, I really enjoyed this book. It's, it's a, a region and an era that, uh, and, and a number of topics that I thought I had a good handle on, and it turns out I didn't. Um, and <laughs> I learned a lot. Um, uh, I want to give you the opportunity, if you'd like, to um, tell us about um, any new things that uh, you're working on. Um, mm-hmm. I know uh, some authors don't want to get scoops. They, they keep some things close to the chest. But is there anything new in the pipeline that you're excited about that um, we should be, be looking for? Uh, I have a few things coming out, I mean, that are in press. Um, one is a, a, a contribution to a Journal of Arizona History issue that's coming out in the fall on the state of the field of Arizona history. And I'm looking at my my own community and particularly Yavapai history and um, issues with Yavapai historiography and representation and why, um, as, as I argue, an extremely important indigenous group within the landscape of Arizona's indigenous community, um, we sort of are often absent and that, that story is not there. Um, so that's one thing that I'm working on. Uh, another chapter in a, a book that will be published at some point on indigenous uh, urbanization, urbanism, um, looking at particularly my community and how it had, how it interacted with with urbanization and industrialization in the progressive era. So the, climate, the, the climate part. center volume. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and um, I think I'm turning more towards my own community for sure. I mean, I'll, I'll be doing work with the Yavapai Apache Nation uh, more on topics related to uh, and and a variety of things. I mean, I'm I'm trying to help uh, secure. Um, a, a language grant for Yavapai language, um, working with a linguist out of California and trying to, to work with our tribe's culture department and, and um, with with language initiatives. Uh, and then my next book will be on um, my community with, with an interest specifically on uh, scouts. So Apache and Yavapai scouts, Western Apache and, and Yavapai scouts who um, you know, in, in large numbers uh, were part of the so-called Apache Wars in the, the 1870s and, and 80s. But looking more at what happened to these individuals and their families after the wars are over, like how do they contribute to their communities, especially in a period when we, we think of the, the nadir of, of um, indigenous North America is around 1900, right? The, the census numbers are the lowest and they start to rebound after that. So what are... Um, what are these former scouts and their families and the pensions that they receive and the, the homesteads that they're awarded? How do these benefit the communities? How do they help build communities during this time of, you know, very, this, this time of hardship, you know, very difficult time. So it'll be, that's what I'm looking at. The scouts after the Indian Wars, you know, what happens to them after, uh, I don't want to tell the, the the Apache War story. I want to, or or even the Scout story in that setting. I want to tell it. You know, they go back to their communities. What do they do? They're leaders. They're important. Um, and maybe tying that to my previous work, uh, these are individuals who've interacted with federal bureaucracy, with the army, with um, Indian agents and others. And so, how do they use that knowledge to the benefit of their communities and in um, helping our community? 
survive a really difficult period. Um, so that's that's my next work. That sounds great, Maurice. Well, thanks for taking some time to talk with us. Uh, best of luck in all these future endeavors and um, in getting the word out about uh, about your book. These people have always been a republic. Thanks so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me. Take care. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll subscribe and listen every month. Please leave a review on whatever app or platform you're using, or follow us on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West, where you can get updates and leave comments. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. Find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Anderson with an O, dot com. I'll go ahead and put that link in the episode description if you didn't catch it. My name is Brendan Rensink. I serve as the podcast host, producer, sound engineer, publicist, and just about everything else. So you can direct any praise or critiques my way. I'm associate director of the Red Center and an associate professor of history at Brigham Young University. I'm author and editor of a number of books on the West, borderlands, native peoples, genocide studies, religion, and the environment. You can find out more on my website, bwrensink.org, or follow me on Twitter at Brendan W. Rensink. That's B-R-E-N-D-E-N-W-R-E-N-S-I-N-K. One last plug, if you live in the Intermountain West, check out the Red Center's digital public history project, Intermountain Histories, by visiting intermountainhistories.org, or by downloading the free mobile app by searching for Intermountain Histories on your Apple or Android devices. With this website and mobile app, you can read carefully curated about complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. Well, until next month, be well, be curious, be kind.